0: Welcome to New Thinking for a New World, a Tilburg Foundation podcast. I am Alan Stoga, your host. Each week, I bring you conversations with people who think differently about the great issues that are shaping our world. Geopolitics, disruptive tech, mass migration, the changing climate, culture wars, all of it is grist for our mill. I hope you enjoy listening. I also hope you will let me know what you think and that you join the conversation at telbergfoundation.org. And now for today's episode of New Thinking for a New World. Recently, Sweden's security service raised its assessment of the level of terrorism threat against the country to four on a scale of one to five. Sweden is now regarded as a priority target by extremist Islamic groups. Indeed, the prime minister recently said that several attacks have already been thwarted. The cause, or maybe the excuse, is a series of Quran burnings by anti-Islamic activists earlier this summer that outraged Muslims around the world. Although the Swedish government condemned the burnings, they couldn't stop them because of freedom of speech protections in Swedish law. The irony, of course, is that Sweden, one of the most liberal democracies in the world, is now caught in a double bind. To prevent more public Quran desecrations, which it badly wants to do, it's becoming significantly less liberal. That circumstance and that challenge applies well beyond Sweden, I think, which is why today's guest, Elizabeth Bross, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a columnist for both Foreign Policy and Politico Europe, is Important to talk to. She recently published an article on the Swedish dilemma how tolerance makes nations vulnerable. Welcome, Elizabeth, to New Thinking for a New World. Thank you. In your Financial Times article, you reminded readers of Karl Popper's Open Society and Its Enemies, which he started writing in 1938. Why are his arguments about tolerance, which were formulated? uh in the context of the challenges of Nazi Germany relevant today
1: yeah it's it's extraordinary that the book uh written uh, decades ago about a societal phenomenon that applied then can apply so uh so uh strongly today in liberal democracies. And this is really a problem for liberal democracies because the way we are set up, which is what he also outlines, is that we are societies of tolerance and there is a social contract there, which is that everybody puts tolerance into the mix and gets tolerance back. And that has worked pretty well for us. Obviously, we need legislation. We need that framework of of, uh, uh, of the rule of law and of punishment if you break the rule of law. But in terms of the interaction um, among citizens, uh, including uh, discourse, uh, that we have left pretty free because we have been able to count on citizens prizing liberal democracy so much that, that they will be tolerant vis-a-vis others because they want others to be tolerant vis-a-vis them. And where this, uh, really, uh, hits a barrier is when some parts of society, some individuals exploit that tolerance and that extreme, uh, or that fantastic, wonderful, amazing freedom that we give our citizens when they exploit that to harm the, the very society that gives them that freedom and that gives them that freedom to, to voice opinions. And that's where we are today.
0: Of course, there's an argument that it is that extremism that somehow strengthens democracy, that it causes people uh, to react and reinforce the basic freedoms, and clearly that is the double bind. How much extremism can you tolerate in a tolerant society? At what point do you have to become intolerant of extremism?
1: Yes, at one, what point do you have to become intolerant? And the way we have we have operated so far is we have been trying to to plead with 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 people to uh, with to. Use their better selves to, to consider other, to be considerate of others. And we have only really prosecuted, legislated against, and then prosecuted violent crimes. So, for example, if, if you attack somebody clearly, uh, you know, in, in, the name of, in, in the name of ideology, you are still prosecuted for it. But if you criticize that person, you are, you, you don't go to jail because we have freedom of speech, but, uh, you can, what we're seeing today is that you can do so much harm, uh, maybe not physical harm to people, but you can do harm to society at large by uh, by exploiting that freedom. And, and so that means that the rest of society, uh, which is, I argue, it's still... Uh, the majority, the rest of society then has to think about how, what do we do about this if, if pleading goes nowhere, if there are elements of society that are willing to engage in, in very provocative acts and indeed, um, Trigger violence uh, elsewhere uh, through their words and through their actions, even if even if they don't physically attack anybody. Then uh, we have to start entertaining that that notion that maybe we should be less tolerant of, of uh, radical views, simply because a liberal democracy is not uh, uh, is, is not guaranteed to exist. It's it's a construct that we all have to be part of of uh, keeping up and maintaining. And if a large enough chunk of the population uh, attacks that construct, it's not going to be able to withstand those attacks, it's going to crumble.
0: Popper also argued a sort of theory of history as a long-term battle between proponents of open society and proponents of closed society. And that's of course, back where we are again in terms of world order, uh, competition between open and closed democracies and autocracies. As you point out, it is stunning that we've gone full circle. We're almost back to 1938 when he was beginning to think about exactly that challenge: open versus closed. So much for the end of history.
1: So much, for, so much for the end of history, indeed. And and I think even those who strongly believe that that. Uh, History had taken a new turn after after the end of the Cold War. Even they have been disabused of that notion, and and uh, I think most of us realize by this point have realized by this point that the history goes in circles, and and we see dark turns, and then people, uh, after a while, in in uh, after having been part of, of such a dark turn for a while, they realize that no, it's it's uh, this is absolutely not a desirable way to live, and they try to establish something resembling democracy, which is obviously. Uh, what has happened at, at many points uh and we had a nice and long run with liberal democracy in western europe and, and north america and a few other places um uh during the 20th century and we still do and in other other places it's more recent and uh uh I just sincerely hope that that we won't have to to take that dark turn before we realize how valuable and how precious liberal democracy is. And I think, uh, Alan, this is a, a, a really crucial point. We are most of us don't take. Uh, we take liberal democracy for granted, those of us living in liberal democracies, those of us who have never experienced any other form of society, we take liberal democracy for granted, we just assume they will always be around because that's that 's the only way of life we know, but there is nothing there is nothing um, uh, guaranteed about liberal democracy it It requires everybody to put in a certain amount of effort. Even a small amount of effort, but everybody have to, has to pitch in to to help maintain it because otherwise it will collapse under the pressure and burden and attacks of those who
0: hate liberal democracy. Let's turn to Sweden, which is the specific case that you discussed in your article. In resume, what happened?
1: What happened was oh, it's uh, Alan. It's an extraordinary time of events. So Sweden applied for NATO membership last year. Um, and it had assurances, uh, informal assurances from Turkey that, uh, and indeed from every, every other NATO member state that, that it would get the green light for NATO membership when it applied. So it applied. Then it, after it applied, President Erdogan said, well, we have these concerns about Kurdish militants that have been given asylum in Sweden. We want Sweden to extradite them. So there were negotiations between Sweden and Turkey and, and they've reached some sort of, uh, agreement that Sweden would, would monitor Kurdish. Uh, extremism more closely in Sweden and, and, and of course, Sweden monitors, does monitor, uh, extremist activities, uh, that violate the law. So, uh, the Sweden mon- promised Turkey essentially to, to keep a, a close eye to make sure that w- there was no illegal activity. Um, but Turkey kept up the pressure and, and indeed, um, unfairly changed, uh, its demands after Sweden had already agreed to uh, one set of demands, so that kept going. Then uh, some troublemakers realized that this was the perfect opportunity to get the tension uh, for various reasons. So there is a there is a Danish provocateur, uh, a career provocateur called uh, Rasmus Paladin who. Uh, stages stunts, uh, far-right stunts every now and then. So he thought, oh, this is a good time to travel to Stockholm uh, and and desecrate the Quran to to anger President Erdogan because look how much attention I will get if I anger President Erdogan. And that's what he did. Then some uh, anti-NATO activists, a tiny, tiny group, uh, thought, oh, this is a good idea. We're going to hang an effigy of President Erdogan in Stockholm to anger President Erdogan to make sure that he (laughs) permanently permanently blocks Swedish uh, access to NATO because we don't want Sweden to join NATO. So that is the background, and that was at the beginning of the year. Then in June uh, of this year, uh, a mysterious man, an Iraqi refugee, uh, burnt a Quran in Stockholm, and this is what set in motion this uh, extraordinary anger campaign that we ha- that Sweden has been experiencing since then, and which has led to uh, uh, the, the state that that uh, Sweden is in now with a heightened uh, terror alert um, uh, or terror risk alert. And n- the more is known about this man, um, the, the Iraqi refugee, uh, th- the more peculiar strange odd the case becomes so he is not just any refugee he he said uh, that he he wanted to burn a quran to, to protest uh, against uh, islam but there are i think there are other ways of protesting <laughs> against islam they, not just i think there are other ways but he did that and but he's not just any refugee he's somebody who has led a militia in iraq uh, and a militia linked to iran so he's clearly uh, he has a certain background, and he left that position after a power struggle with another militia leader. Um, so there we are. And that triggered uh, an instantaneous disinformation campaign against Sweden, and th- that's what I think is something that other countries really should look at to make sure that they are better prepared for for. Uh, similar campaigns against them. So a a, a massive disinformation campaign against Sweden is uh, propagated primarily by Arabic language accounts and Russian language accounts on social media. And then the the governments of Iran, Iraq, um, and and a few other countries uh, pushing for the organization of Islamic States to condemn Sweden for Islamophobia, uh, which is where we are today. Massive, massive, Muslim anger against Sweden on incorrect grounds because what what they are alleging is that Sweden, um, the Swedish government, supports Quran burnings, and anybody who knows about Swedish um, administrative law knows that this is a, a matter for local police agencies, and they don't. It's they don't have. Uh, the right to, to ban uh, anything they have the, they can issue protest permits or they cannot issue protest permits but they can't say you may protest but you may not burn a ground. So that's where we are today.
0: Thanks for listening so far. I hope you're enjoying the conversation as much as I have. If you haven't already, please subscribe on the platform of your choice and rate us on Apple Podcast. Now back to today's discussion sponsored by the Stavros Nearchu Foundation, SNF. You've just described the double bind. On the one hand, Swedish authorities and the prime minister has repeatedly said, I don't want any holy books to be burned. I think it's a bad thing that people burn holy books, whether it's the Koran or the Bible or the Torah, uh, this shouldn't happen. But the only thing, way I can stop it, it would be in fact by dramatically changing how Sweden thinks and, and acts uh, about protest, about freedom of speech, Indeed, there are some people in Sweden who seem to be trying to find a solution, a illegal solution to change the law, to make this illegal, to somehow pull into government authority the ability to stop these things before they happen. I'm sure everyone is thinking about the Charlie Hebdo massacre in 2015 as a truly ugly precedent. What do the Swedes do?
1: What do they do? Well... <laughs> The, the, the problem, Alan, is that if they change the legislation now, it will signal to the world that if you attack verbally and otherwise, because we should remember that in Iraq, a mob attacked the Swedish embassy and the, 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 the Iraqi government expelled the ambassador uh, instead of apologizing for a mob being able to attack and indeed enter the embassy. Uh, so... What happens uh, now if Sweden does change the legislation is that it sends a message to the world that if you attack um, verbally and perhaps physically uh, a liberal democracy – strongly enough that liberal democracy can will say oh uh, this is uncomfortable we 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 better uh, compromise so that it doesn't happen again and so of course if you send that message as a liberal democracy the side that is willing in, in, to engage in verbal uh and other aggression against you will do even more of it it's not going to say well that oh i'm glad you agreed to this compromise now we'll we'll live happily ever after because you agreed to this one thing um and and this is the challenge alan of 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 being a liberal democracy uh, because you, as a liberal democracy, are mostly tolerant, and so you, you uh, assume that others will be tolerant too. But in the end, you may be the un- the only side that is tolerant. So you make concessions, whereas the other side doesn't make concessions, whereas the other side, uh, whether w- the other side is uh, extremists and subversive elements in your own country or indeed uh, foreign governments.
0: We referenced end of history. We should reference class of civilizations. This is a clash of civilizations that in some ways seems to me uh, irreconcilable. And it isn't just clearly, as you said, some of the protest in the Arab world is politically motivated. All those Russian trolls probably don't care much about the Koran, but they certainly do care about NATO membership. Uh, but there's also a fair amount of, you and I would both argue, uninformed popular reaction. This is the, the famed Arab street Reacting, it's a bad thing, etc. That circle can't. I, I can't imagine how to square that circle.
1: Well, I, I don't think it's a clash between people of different faiths, uh, whether in Sweden or, or elsewhere. I think it's a clash between uh, those wanting to to live in a tolerant way and those who, for whatever reason, uh, are are keen to exploit that and, and harm the other side. And I think in the case of the governments of Iran and Iraq uh, and indeed Russia, they are keen to deflect the tension from their own failings and move uh, and, and move the discourse and the focus of, of global discourse onto another country, which they have managed to do brilliantly. If you look at uh, what, what people are talking about today, just like you and I are talking about um, the case of Sweden, Instead of talking about the women's protests in Iran, that is the case in many other places. Uh, the, uh, Iran has, a, has the, the Iranian government has a, a massive domestic problem at its hands because women are standing up for the right not to, to wear A headscarf, and so Iran, in this case, has a has a reason to try to deflect attention from that and from its from its failing, really, uh, its its failure to listen to its own population. Um, So I think it's it's a clash between tolerant societies and tolerant members of society and people in individuals and governments uh, that are for whatever reason, on a warpath against that, that, uh, that way of life and uh, are willing to s- exploit the freedom that liberal democracy grants to harm that very liberal democracy.
0: In contrast to a place like Iran, as you mentioned, or Afghanistan, uh, where clearly we in the West are outraged by uh, policies vis-a-vis women, vis-a-vis children, uh, and so on. Uh, but those governments clearly don't care. There is, there's, there's not an equivalence of care. We feel guilty about Quran burnings in Sweden. They clearly don't feel guilty about, in Afghanistan, not allowing girls to go to school.
1: We should remember that that Quran burnings in Sweden, we're, we're saying it in, in plural, but it really is a, a rare phenomenon. It was a rare phenomenon until this Iraqi refugee. Who knows what his motivations are? Who knows whether... Uh, he has mental health issues, whether he has, uh, links to groups, uh, and regimes wishing Sweden ill. Uh, but it was, it, it was manageable and uh, it was very rare and, until he came along. And then suddenly the floodgates of disinformation broke open and, um, If I may add, Alan, we all have a responsibility to make sure that the information we share, especially on social media, but also elsewhere, that it is accurate. Because part of the reason that that this anger campaign against Sweden grew so quickly is that people were careless in the information they were sharing. And there there was, frankly, there was a bit of, there was a, there was not just the disinformation uh, from those Arabic and, and Russian uh, accounts, uh, language accounts, but there was also uh, sloppiness in reporting by international correspondents who may not be familiar with Sweden, uh, Swedish administrative law. So they they wrongly assume that it's the government that, that grants permissions for protests and that the government can say whether you may or may not burn a Quran. That is obviously not the case. And and so all this. All this information and resulting anger was spread by lots of people, including people who unwittingly shared incorrect information simply because they didn't verify before sharing.
0: Well, that's an incredibly important point and is part of the wallpaper of the 21st century. There, You're right. We, air quotes on the word we, ought to be more responsible and think twice before we push that send button. Uh, but nobody does, or very few people do. And it is not controllable. It is not regulatable. Um, and it is only getting worse, not just globally, but domestically. And I do want to switch focal points. Uh, you're sitting in Washington, so it's legitimate to ask about American politics, which have obviously become hyperpartisan. The two tribes no longer just disagree, they're starting to threaten each other in some really e- even violent ways. Both are increasingly intolerant of the other. Some of my progressive friends would argue that Trump should not be tolerated. And some of my radical conservative friends say that say the same of Biden or of AOC and the progressive left. If we put all that inside the popper frame, how do you think about preventing the United States from from really going down some pretty dark paths as this tolerance of intolerance um, continues? should we tolerate hate speech tolerate extreme political speech
1: it is extraordinary i've i've uh lived in america on and off since 1996 and even in that Time frame which isn 't very long in the scheme of things i 've seen American society go from mostly friendly and, and uh, people willing to engage and have chats with with people of all political uh persuasions to this as you say hyper partisan environment um, and uh, we can say it 's fueled by social media, yes, it is fuel, fueled by social media, but what do we do about it? Well I think this uh, this downward spiral started um, with something. Um, That um, Robert Putnam, who is a a sociologist, that he documented in a fantastic book that came out in 1999 called Bowling Alone. And I remember reading it then and and being blown away by what he documented. And and for those of of you listeners who may not have read it, what he documented was a decline in civic participation in America. And uh, it was stark. So people belonged to far fewer clubs and associations uh, in 1999 than they had uh, done in the, in the 1950s. They had uh, meals together far less often than they had in, 19, in the 1950s, and so on and so on. And back in 1999, when the book came out, it, it was an interesting set of facts that Robert Putnam presented. And it's similar, the, the, the development is similar in other Western countries, even though maybe less stark than in America. But what it documented uh, was interesting in its own right and and frightening. But what we have seen since then is that people, um, because they don't interact with their fellow citizens on on a regular basis, including fellow citizens who may be different from them, them, uh, have different political views, different different age, uh, and so forth they are much more willing to think ill of their fellow citizens. And of course, they don't spend their time... uh that they in the past spent in you know bowling clubs or uh, uh, or educational associations or what have you or indeed choirs they don't spend that time reading Karl Popper they they spend that time on social media mostly unfortunately uh, which leads down this this uh, narrow tunnel of, of of only reading and seeing information that you already agree with and in the most extreme of cases it leads to um, involvement in conspiracy. Theories, which is, was obviously what what triggered the the January sixth attack on 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 the Capitol. So that's where we are today, and I think Alan, as a result, what we need is, uh, and, and this may be difficult to do, but we need new. Uh, societal institutions that that people can participate in. It used to be churches uh, or denominations, uh bowling clubs. Uh, I've sung in choirs all my life. The choirs are unfortunately still vibrant, but uh, maybe we need new places where people can gather so that they engage with their fellow human beings on a regular basis, including those who... Are different hold different views uh, as I said uh, people of different ages and the the more you interact with others, the less inclined you become to to feel uh, anger and resentment and hatred of them and as I said, uh, this may be difficult to to do because what what are the new societal institutions we need uh, uh, that I think would be a subject for for, for another podcast episode, but I think The more we interact with one another, the less angry we become and and the more willing we become to think well of of our fellow human beings and of society.
0: Not to beat a dead horse, everything you just said is even more true after the pandemic and in the light, in the context of work from home. Both of those led to less social interaction, uh, less open conversation. Uh, and more living on a screen, or living through a screen, rather than sort of normal, what you and I would call would be normal social interaction. Last question. The last sentence of your article is this. Liberal democracies should learn from Popper that supporting tolerance means treating the intolerant with intolerance. I think it's a terrific uh, punchline, but and I, we, I've asked this once, I'll ask it slightly differently. At what point does it risk becoming self-defeating? That is, of closing down what we both want, which is the most open society possible.
1: It is such a difficult measurement to make. What is uh, what is acceptable uh, expressions of uh, free speech that are maybe unpalatable, but... Uh, but should still be tolerated. I think the moment you have free speech that, or you have expressions of free speech that incite violence against your own country, I think that's where you have to draw the line. We can have uh, any, any uh, number, any manner of, of, ugly opinions, what most people would, might consider ugly opinions, we can still allow those uh, to exist within our societies and be expressed within our societies. Um, and, uh, but if we draw the line at opinions that incite violence, I think th- that may be the, a, a good, a good uh, the, maybe not a perfect, but the best possible uh, red line to draw for what we can permit within our societies while remaining tolerant.
0: Thank you, Elizabeth Braugh, for that, both that summary and this conversation. Again, uh, I urge everyone to read How Tolerance Makes Nations Vulnerable. Somewhere on the page that you're looking at, you can click on that link. Uh, Thank you, Elizabeth. And we'll have this conversation again. I suspect these issues aren't going away. I suspect they're gonna get far worse.
1: That is unfortunately the case. So I look forward to chatting with you again.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of New Thinking for a New World. I'm Alan Stoga, podcast host, and I look forward to your joining our next conversation. Remember, tell us what you think at telbergfoundation.org.